It's always interesting to see other worship styles and experience other ways that churches did things. Um, and there was one weekend in particular that I remember um, at a, a small Baptist church right in the middle of town. Uh, my parents prepared us. They said, okay, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not going to go to our church. We're going to go to just this, this church because they're having what's called a hymn sing. Has anyone ever been to a hymn sing? My mom has. It's right there. No, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. So a uh, hymn is what we used to call worship music. And then we would print them into hymnals, which were the books that we would have those in, and they were arranged by numbers. And I don't take it for granted that people honestly don't know this. And then a hymn sing is you, the whole worship service, every other part of the service would be scrapped. There's no sermon, there's no kids' time or anything. It's just we're going to sit and, and, and people would call out the number in the hymnal that they wanted to sing. And then you'd spend the entire hour and we would just flip through and find the hymn that, that was requ- Think of a piano bar that's infinitely less exciting So my parents prepared us. They said, this is what we're going to do. My mom was going to play piano for this entire hymn sing. We get there, and we dress a little bit nicer because it's a more traditional church than we're used to and kind of sneak into a pew. In the ba- a pew is what we used to call seats in church. We'd, we snuck in the back. My dad and my sister and I, my mom sat at the piano, and the pastor just got up, and he said, okay, uh, just somebody say, you know, the, the number of the hymn that you want to sing together, and, you know, on we went. And so somebody would, you know, we went through the greatest hits, Amazing Grace and How Great Thou Art and other hymns that I know the names of. And uh, my mom would just turn and start playing, and then we would sing them together. Well, at about 45 minutes or so, we, they kind of lost steam. You know, we'd gone through all the, good, all the greatest hits, and people are starting to kind of reach for things. And the pastor got up, and he said, come on, just anybody shout out a number. Rule number one, when kids are present, you never just say shout anything. If I were to say right now, hey, kids, shout out a number, we'd probably hear some numbers. So me being the sarcastic at eight years old that I was, thought, oh, this is funny. This is perfect. I'll, I'll draw attention to myself. been waiting for this for 45 minutes for somebody to pay attention to me. The pastor says, somebody just shout out a number. And so I said, 496. <laughs> I thought it'd be funny. Everyone would laugh at my great joke. No one's going to take this seriously. And to my horror, the pastor just said, okay, 496. And everybody in the church, all 30 of them, started turning to him 496, including my poor mom at the piano. Now, if you've ever um, browsed through a hymnal, like you do from time to time, you'll see, you know, the good hymns, right? They're the full page, they're in the right key, the lyrics make sense. And then there are what I call filler hymns. These are the hymns, if you've ever looked at a hymnal, where they, they had some extra room on the page. And they just added some two-line, really weird, that no one was ever meant to sing, that had like six sharps, and it's in 5-4 time. That was hymn 496. It was a filler hymn. No one had ever heard of it. Thankfully, it was in English, because sometimes you get that. So my mom starts sight-reading this terrible piece of music, and she's doing her best job. I'm in the back trying not to laugh at how ridiculous this is. I think my dad was too. And people are are trying to sing this song together. And finally what happens is I start getting the look. Have you ever gotten the look in church? 
Pews are really good for giving the look because they've got a low back. And all the church ladies can just sort of find you. And they don't just say anything. They can just say it with the look. They, they, they say, how could you? How, you ruined our hymn sing, kid. Why are you even here? I'll never forget the look. We kicked off student ministry, like Ashley said, on Wednesday, and it was great. Um, at Hope, we're kind of known for going all out for student ministry, for kids' ministry. Uh, we turned the music up way louder out here. We, we might have gotten the look from some neighbors, and I'm sorry, neighbors, uh, if you're out listening. We, uh, we did file a noise permit for all this stuff. Um, VBS, another, another great week around here when we, when we pull out all the stops for the kids. You know, we, we want to make sure that our, our kids and our students have an experience that, that, that connects with them, that relates to where they are in their life. The music is a bit louder. It's different than what we play on the weekends. And like, like most people, not like most people, but like a lot of people, the tendency can be when the kids come around to church, we, 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 we fall into maybe the temptation to either just brush it aside or ignore it, or maybe we'll be gone that weekend when the kids are up front, and, or, or if they're there, we want to give them the look. It's just not, maybe it's just not your thing. I've been on staff at a number of different churches over the last uh, 14 years in ministry, and all of them have had some kind of vacation Bible school. All of them have had some kind of student ministry that they, that they offered. What's different about hope that I've discovered is, is an attitude that we have. It's, it's a hopism that we use quite frequently. We, we, we view student ministry and kids ministry as a, as a get-to and not a got-to. Other churches I've been to, we, we kind of had to do kids ministry. At Hope, we really value it. We see that there's actual benefit for us as adults. We get to be there when students and children are experiencing something life-giving, something nourishing, and then something exciting that actually interests them, that reaches them on a level that, that is familiar and comfortable and helps them get to know the God that they're interested in learning about. And that's, that's Hope's culture. And other places I've been, it's not quite that way. The, the disciples uh, in, in Jesus' ministry sort of, they, they gave kids the look on more than one occasion. The, the Bible reading that we heard for tonight from Matthew chapter 19, we, we see, and it's, it's actually uh, recounted in every one of Jesus' stories so that we, we're pretty confident that this is, a, is something that happened when Jesus was alive, that, that parents brought their kids to see Jesus. You know, it was kids' ministry weekend or whatever. It was VBS with Jesus, man, how awesome would that be? And the disciples gave them the look. They, my translation, they rebuked them. The parents, the kids, stay away. This isn't for you. How could you? You're going to ruin it. Now, there's all kinds of reasons for this. But I think one of them that, that this Bible reading points to, a little clue that tells us why the disciples rebuked the children, is that they, weren't, they were on their way to somewhere else. It says at the very end that after Jesus had said, don't hinder them, let the children come to me, after he had laid hands on them and prayed for them, then they left and went on their way. If you read the gospel accounts and what Jesus' ministry was all about, you'll often hear the phrase, while they were going. They were a mobile ministry. They were often going from one town to the next to make disciples, to heal people from diseases, to cast out demons, to preach stories. And, and they were likely, in this instance, going from one place to another 
And that's when their journey got interrupted by these kids. And if you've ever been on a road trip with kids, you know that they are the, they are the most inefficient creatures on the planet. They are not in any hurry. When my wife and I take a road trip with kids, which we haven't done much of in the last seven months, we build in a few extra hours, maybe the whole day, to get to where we're going. Even if, if, if we, without children, we, it was only a two-hour trip, we know it's going to take four or five or six hours to get there. It's just sort of an expected thing. They are not efficient on the road. And I think the disciples on this pit stop, when the kids come up, they're like, man, this is going to really slow us down. We have somewhere to be because while children might be the most inefficient creatures, adults, we grown-ups, are probably the most impatient creatures on the planet. We, we got to be somewhere. I don't know where you got to be next, but I'm pretty sure you know where it is and how you're going to get there and how long it's going to take. We, we feel like we have to hurry from point A to point B. And that sort of builds up in us uh, the older we get, I think. We're, we're starting, well, we're in the middle of a, a message series right now called A Pathway to a New Normal. And we're looking at ways that we can build up our faith life in this season when we know that God is teaching us important lessons about what it means to not just, not just have faith in this life, but to simply be alive as human beings. And, and we've explored different ways of, of, of God teaching us lessons during a very difficult season. And I see in this episode when Jesus insists that the children be allowed to meet with him and pray with him, that Jesus is teaching us, his disciples, the importance of having patience. That we're, we're on a pathway to a new normal. We didn't call it the new normal as though we've already arrived. We're on the way. And we don't know what that new normal is necessarily going to look like. But I feel in myself, and I've, I've heard from many others, uh, a certain impatience with being there. Do you know what I mean? Right now we're on this pathway and we can't necessarily see the destination and it feels uncomfortable. The road is quite bumpy, this pathway to a new normal. And we just wish we were there already. We are impatient with the season that we're in. Sociologists have started saying that COVID-19 is a mirror for our culture. A mirror that's being held up to our society, showing us who we really are. And it's showing a, a, a quite impatient society wanting to be done with something that is not quite done with us yet. And when we're impatient with life, with faith, with difficult seasons and moments, we can actually and have actually done more harm than good because of our impatience. And so Jesus, in this instance, actually insists that the children come probably to teach his disciples, hey, you got to slow down. What's your hurry? You're going to miss some stuff if you're always in a hurry to get from point A to point B. I've been blessed on several occasions to be able to travel to uh, a couple of different countries on the continent of Africa. And every time I've gone, Africa is a, a massive continent, and every country has its own distinct qualities. But every time I've gone to whatever country it is, they, they prepare Americans by saying, now you're going to have to get used to Africa time. Africa time is a way of, of approaching deadlines and, and, and schedules. It's different over there. And, and they, have a, they have a proverb. If you've ever heard the word or the phrase an African proverb, there is one about this. Uh, a lot of African languages are, are uh, based in Swahili and the proverb's in Swahili. So I'm going to teach you a couple of words in Swahili. Are you ready? Good. I heard from a couple of people. All right. So repeat after me. The first word is haraka. Great. 
And then we say it again, haraka. The third word is haina. And then the fourth word is baraka. So all together, haraka, haraka, haina, baraka. That's great, you know Swahili. The, what it means is simply this. Hurry, hurry, no blessing. Hurry, hurry, no blessing. If we're in too big of a hurry to get from point A to point B, imagine what you miss out on. Imagine what blessings are on the pathway to the new normal before you even get there that God is trying to show you, expose you to, open your eyes to. The blessings of today, this moment, this week, the people who are around you right now, whatever you're experiencing, the blessings of this time that we might miss out on because we're in too big of a hurry, too impatient to get to somewhere else. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you hurry past this moment, you're going to miss the blessing of seeing childlike faith on display right in front of you. Kids who want to be around Jesus because they just want to be around Jesus and have prayer. And that's a tremendous blessing that we might miss out on when we're in too big of a hurry. It reminds me of um, different biographical accounts of, of President Abraham Lincoln. Um, man, guess what clips I'd be showing if we were in the building. That'd be nice. Soon, I think. New normal, right? We'll get there. So many different biographies of Lincoln, and they all, not all, most of them, the ones that I've read, include some detail about his personality as a leader, that, that he was not very impatient. He was pretty temperate. In fact, he almost derived a certain sense of enjoyment around wasting people's time by telling them anecdotes and stories. He kind of liked it. He was known for uh, keeping whole processional lines at the White House delayed, like down Pennsylvania Avenue, people waiting to get into the event, just so that he could stop and talk to one person and, and have them retell him a joke that he might have been told a week ago. Like, hey, stop, everybody. I forgot the joke that he told me. And that was kind of Abraham Lincoln's posture towards leadership in, in a way. He was not in much of a hurry. There's a great example of this, of how he just loved to tell stories from one of these biographies that I laugh at every time I hear it. So he's in a cabinet meeting, and it's not just any cabinet meeting. It says from the, from the biography, Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton said that before he announced the draft Emancipation Proclamation... So this is the cabinet meeting where Abraham Lincoln is about to tell his secretaries what the Emancipation Proclamation says. And they're all there waiting. Mr. Lincoln was reading a book of some kind which seemed to amuse him. It was a little book. He finally turned to us and said, Gentlemen, I wish I could do a Lincoln impersonation. I don't know what he sounded like. Did you ever read anything from Artemis Ward? And his whole cabinet's just sitting there. Let me read you a chapter. It's very funny. Not a member of the cabinet smiled. As for me, I was angry and looked to see what the president meant. See, he was giving the president the look. It seemed to me like buffoonery. He, however, concluded to read a whole chapter from Artemis Ward, which he did with great deliberation and having finished, laughed heartily without a member of the cabinet joining in the laughter. Well, he said... Let's have another chapter. And he read another chapter 
To our great astonishment, I was considering whether I should rise and leave the meeting abruptly when he threw his book down, heaved a heavy sigh, and said, Gentlemen, why don't you laugh? With the fearful strain that is upon me night and day, if I did not laugh, I should die. And you need this medicine as much as I do. And I think Lincoln is telling us another important lesson that you learn from children. Uh, another part of his quality, Lincoln loved his kids and spent a lot of time with them, interrupted meetings for them. Kids laugh. Kids have a great time. I, was, I got to play bass when we were doing Power Life and Ignition on Wednesday, and I just got to stand up here and play and watch as right where we're sitting, we did it outside here, as, as middle schoolers and high schoolers are dancing and jumping up and down and singing as loudly as they could these worship songs. In Vacation Bible School, it's the same sense of joy and celebration that you see when you're around kids, that we get to see that. We get to laugh. And with the, the, the fearful strain that is on us right now, there's a medicine that Jesus offers us around kids getting to be exposed to their joy, their exuberance, the way that they celebrate life that we miss out on when we're in a hurry. That kids give us something of that that we need. How, how are you doing in that right now? Are you, are you able to find some measure of joy in your life, celebration in your life, not, not in spite of hard times, but in the hard times? If, you, if you're ever looking for a, a biblical figure to, to dive into, the, the life of a biblical character for what it looks like to trod a pathway to a new normal and for it to take a very long time, David, I think, is a great example of that. King David in the Old Testament. David was anointed king when he was a teenager. And it wasn't until decades later after civil war and, and assassination attempts and other wars with other countries that he finally became the king of the nation of Israel. David knew what it was like to go through hard times, and yet he did not allow that to rob him of his youthful exuberance when it came to celebrating who God is and what he was doing in his life. When, fi when David finally became king, there was a war with the Philistines. That was kind of their arch rival. Israel and the Philistines were always seemingly at conflict with each other. And in one of those battles, the Philistines managed to steal the Ark of the Covenant that the Israelites took before them into battle. The Ark of the Covenant was the, 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 the item that represented God's presence with the nation of Israel, made for the tabernacle by the Israelites under Moses' direction. And inside of it would be the, the, the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments or the Ten Promises, if you were here with me a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about that. And they would carry this as a reminder of them that God was with them. Wherever they went, even at war, even in battle, that God was there with them and then the Philistines stole it. It's a tremendous loss for them. So fast forward and David is now finally king and at a decisive battle at Gibeon in 2 Samuel 5 and 6, they managed to actually recapture the city where the Ark of the Covenant is. 
And, and it's this great thing. That not only, it's hard for us to picture this because we have the Holy Spirit with us at all times. And the Israelites carried these artifacts with them as a reminder of God's presence. It was that powerful, that important to them, to their faith life. And, and they finally got it back. And after a roundabout course and uh, a pretty bumpy road on the way back home, in Second Samuel 6, they finally are able to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. And, and David uses this as an opportunity for a parade. I mean, this, this is a big deal to him. With all of his youthful exuberance and the celebration that he wants to, 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 to pull out all the stops. 2 Samuel 6, verse 5, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. I don't know if I've ever celebrated anything with all my might. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, cisterns, 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 cistrums. I don't know. And cymbals. They, they turned it up. They turned up the music. They stopped every couple of miles to have a sacrifice. They were inefficient with this. They took their time. They were not in a hurry for this celebration. They wanted to remember God's faithfulness to them, God's presence with them. And finally, when the parade makes it to the city of Jerusalem, verse 14, it says, wearing a linen ephod, which is his underwear, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might through the city of, the, of Jerusalem. Here comes the parade and David feels like he needs to celebrate in his underwear. That's how excited he is. I guess that's, what, that's probably why I haven't celebrated anything with all my might. Now, guys, when, when we do something stupid, thank God he's provided us wives to give us the look. It's a really important job that somebody has to do. And David's wife gives him the look. So verse 20 and 21 she sees him, David's wife, sees him dancing through the streets of Jerusalem in his underwear. And she says, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. It's a fair point. I mean, not a great idea, but David was celebrating. And he said this, this was his response. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. That sounds to me like something children would do. Children are not easily embarrassed, if embarrassed at all, by the excitement that they show for anything. But when you get to see, when you get to see a child excited like that, for God. That is a tremendous gift. That is a blessing along the way. And there are so many unique blessings about getting to do ministry with kids and with students. Like Ashley said, if, if you want to see that, if you want to be a part of that, be a leader for student ministry. Get, get to see the excitement on a student's face for their relationship with Jesus that's growing. And, 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 and to know, you, know, you never know. You never know. That, that kid in church you don't like because he's always causing problems could one day be the pastor at church you don't like because he's always causing problems. You never know who that kid's going to turn into, right? David was a great king. David was a great king because he remembered that principle. 
that, that his kingdom, his power, his authority wasn't from himself. It wasn't from how good he looked. It wasn't from his, his unique military strategy or his power. He remembered throughout his entire life that his authority, his kingdom, his rule came from God. That it was God's gift on his life. A, a responsibility that God had given him to steward. His kingdom was from God. And, and it's interesting to me how Jesus, in this, in this scene, as he is praying for kids, ends it with a very unique statement. He said, don't hinder them. Let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It's the biggest part of the lesson. Jesus actually gives away, this is why I'm doing this. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those of us with childlike faith. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Obviously, he's not saying that only kids get to go to heaven. Jesus teaches about the kingdom of heaven a lot, far more than he teaches about salvation. It's almost the thesis of Jesus' ministry, that the kingdom of heaven has come to earth in him, that he is King Jesus. Now, in Jesus' day, they didn't measure kingdoms with lines on a map and distance. The way you knew what kingdom you were in is if you talked to somebody and you said, who's the king, and they would tell you. How far away from the king you could get before people would stop listening to that person's authority? That was how they measured their kingdom. So in Jesus' day, the, the Caesar in Rome was emperor of that region. And that particular Caesar, Octavian, made more statues of himself than any emperor before and put them all over the Mediterranean region. There are even Caesar statues in Israel. And the reason he did that was so that people who would never see his face or hear him speak would know that that is your king. That is the image of your emperor. And they're all over the place. That was what they meant. That was what he was trying to project. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to those with childlike faith, he's not talking about a place. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is not a place, it's a posture. Not Please hear me, heaven is, heaven is real, heaven is a place. But when Jesus is teaching about kingdom, he's teaching about his authority. How, how, how are you respons, res, responding to the authority of God in your life? Is, is your heart close enough to Jesus that it recognizes him as your king, as your authority? Or are you far enough away from God that Jesus' authority on your life doesn't mean anything? When Jesus teaches about the kingdom of heaven belonging to people with childlike faith, he's saying that kids are really good at trusting God's authority. That, that kids are, have, they haven't yet grown up into the bitterness and, and cynicism of adulthood. Their faith is still grounded in, in a trust that God loves them because God loved them because God loves them. And that Jesus is their king. They have no problem with that. Now, that might seem to you like an immature faith. That, that might seem to you like a simplistic kind of faith. Just trusting that God loves you and letting that, letting his authority be enough for your life, guiding you on this pathway. Trusting that even in difficult seasons like we're facing today, God knows what he is doing. And God is in control right now, shaping the world around us providing with us, providing for us whatever the new normal is going to look like and that we can trust him that he has our best, best interests in mind. Believing like we just sang together, even when I don't see it, 
He is moving. He is working. Even when I can't feel it or see it, I trust that God is doing something in our lives, and kids do this great. It's actually a complex faith to have faith like a child. Karl Barth, who was the theologian of the 1920s, um, whose, whose theology that he wrote fills literal shelves of libraries. When he was asked by a seminary student, what, what is just the, the most profound theological statement you have ever heard? Karl Barth says, a hymn that I heard that was written in 1862 called Jesus Loves Me. And this, this brilliant theologian said, the most profound theological statement I've ever heard is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a profoundly complex faith to have faith like a child because it requires us to trust again, to trust what God is doing in our lives, to trust what God is doing in this world, even when it seems like we don't have any control at all, that God is working, God is moving. And that we can have that kind of faith in him if we're able to slow down, appreciate the blessings along the way. If we're able to laugh, if we're able to celebrate, recapture that, that feeling of exuberance. These are the things that kids teach us and should continue to teach us as we listen and pay attention to how we can have that kind of faith in our life. Would you stand with me and pray? God, I'm so grateful for the gift of children in our church, uh, in my life. Thank you for the things that they teach us and show us. I pray for all of us, God, in a season that feels um, difficult and complex, that you would help us cling to your promises, who you are, the identity that we have in you, that we can trust, God, your, your spirit leading us and guiding us in this time and your love for us that never fails. Thank you for that love, God. Give us all the blessing of childlike faith as we look to new normal. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.